Hello, welcome to Why Did Peter Sink? We're doing part two of a multi-part series here called The Fountain of Youth. The pursuit of happiness plays out in strange ways, and the vice or obsession that seems like the answer often leads to bad patterns of living. As readers and watchers, we hate didactic stories that feel like moral preaching, but a tale well told can sneak lessons in like a subtle spice in a dish where we know we like the meal but can't explain why. We can usually sniff out a morality play from a mile away, so we look for the next show to watch or book to read. Aesop's fables are so obviously trying to tell us something moral that we tire of those stories quickly, but will fawn over Moby Dick or Hamlet or Finnegan's Wake, for those who would even attempt it, for generations. That was even James Joyce's goal with Finnegan's Wake, is to confuse the critics. Uh, because we can't easily discern in those books or those works of art what the heck is going on. We love the hunt. We like to hunt for the meaning. We could find all that we need in Aesop, but the fables are too simple. The lessons are too obvious, and the characters are too one-dimensional. So here's a couple of movies that I like where this hunt for meaning is happening with the characters, and they're looking for purpose and happiness. And there's tales uh, somewhat play out like my woman with the cursed bananas from part one, as the main characters of these movies follow their vice or obsession right down to the bitter end. First, there's a, there's a dark crime thriller movie called U-Turn, starring Sean Penn and Jennifer Lopez, where a cocky hotshot, played by Sean Penn, who is addicted to pills, becomes stranded in a desert town in Arizona when his car, a convertible, breaks down. The movie really didn't do very well and critics didn't love it, but the main character's self-obsession and his undying conviction that he is lucky, he's telling himself he's lucky, they make his fall through the acts disturbingly comical in the movie. In the end, after being involved in two murders, after being thrown from a cliff, after breaking his leg, after being beaten, and when he is nearly dying of thirst, he claws his way back to his car in the middle of nowhere under the dead heat of a midday Arizona sun. He is an utter mess and barely alive, but he looks in the rearview mirror and says to himself, you're still lucky. And that's right before he turns the key and a hose bursts in the radiator, rendering his car useless once again. So his luck finally runs out in the movie. He's going to die in the desert as scavenger birds gather around his convertible. And I have to admit, I laughed out loud when the radiator hose burst because he just said, you're still lucky after all of these extremely unlucky events had happened to him. Um, but even as this movie careened from comedy into tragedy in that moment, I think the director, who was Oliver Stone, meant for it to be funny. Um, and for some reason, I connected this darkly humorous scene to St. Paul when he was locked in the prison with his traveling companion Silas. And the two of them had been dragged and beaten with rods in Philippi. And after all that, after they'd been dragged and beaten, the two of them were praying and singing until midnight in the prison. And as Paul is like the devout version of this character, Sean Penn, who's saying to himself, I'm still lucky. But Paul is talking about being lucky 
in faith, lucky in Christ, whereas Sean Penn is still talking about his luck in his disordered pursuit of money and drugs and sex, which is most of the movie where he's pulled into his vices and he gets into all of these situations that are obviously one thing is leading to another. Um, and he thinks he's, his, his decisions are correct when he's making clearly wrong decisions. The greatest moment in the movie is that after the glaringly obvious error of his ways and his continuous pursuit of drugs and women and money that has led him into this uh, mutilated mess, he still clings to this fool's gold, this oak tree, to you refer to the last episode, um, his false idol. He, he clutches his sins like pearls right to the end, only to have it all blow up in his face just like the rubber hose on his radiator in the car. Yeah, the movie didn't win any awards and it wasn't received all that well, but it stuck with me because it illustrates the saying of where your treasure lies, there will your heart also be. And in the beginning, Sean Penn is driving a slightly beat up convertible car with the top down, which is like a symbol for how he lives his life very loosely in the breeze. He's just having fun. He's got and he's got neither conviction nor compunction. He just doesn't feel bad about anything he does. He's just letting the wind blow him wherever it takes him, and it happens to take him into Arizona. And in the end, this top-down way of living is exactly how he is exposed to these desert birds and vultures that are going to eat him in that same convertible, as if he's been put into a desert oven and served up open face to the brutal reality of nature, red in tooth and claw, and in this case, in beak as well. So along with U-Turn, there's two other movies that I thought of for this, and um, they follow this path uh, in a similar way with a different goal, a different, a different obsession, a different vice. But uh, there's one called The Wrestler, and there's another one called The Black Swan. Uh, I feel like these two movies tell a similar story, but from very different worlds. Pro wrestling is the subject of The Wrestler, and ballet is The Black Swan. And those two... Uh, activities are rarely compared or even spoken of in the same breath. However, Natalie Portman in Black Swan is obsessed with a rage to master ballet, to be the best, to succeed at all costs. And she does. She becomes perfect in the end. And in doing so, she dies in the final act having reached her goal, like the apotheosis of her life and the sport. But it costs her everything. She sacrifices her future, the possibility of a family and love and friendship, even her innocence. Everything is put at the foot of the altar of her burning passion for mastery of ballet. In The Wrestler, Mickey Rourke is, the, is the, uh, like a fading star. He's, ha he's outlasted his glory days, but he floats about in a wake of disastrous relationships and drug abuse, and he's just unable to adjust to regular life. His need for fame and glory in the ring is never put to bed. So unlike the black swan, he doesn't die in his glory, in the, in the moment of glory. He has to live beyond his moment of greatness. The black swan character dies at the height of her success. She has performed the perfect dance and died for it. But her tragedy is sacrificing all for a dance that perhaps only she appreciates. And this reminds me of The Hunger Artist by Franz Kafka, and, but I'm already spreading out this comparison too far, so maybe we'll talk about The Hunger Artist in another episode. But um, I see a parallels between The Black Swan and The Hunger Artist. But in The Wrestler, there's, there's two tragedies taking place. Or I guess I'd call them tragedies. First, he outlives his success. He, he's, he goes beyond it. He doesn't 
end in the moment where glory is at the peak. He's been at the top and he's held the title belt. He's basked in the adoration of fans and he's taken the trophy home. But now that's all over and he must live as an ordinary man as he takes a job at a deli in a grocery store and must serve every regular Joe who wants a pound of sliced ham. The earthly glory has been tasted and cannot be removed from his mouth and the need to return to that state of honor lingers. It follows and haunts him daily. And in the last scene, the wrestler has joined a, a local semi-pro wrestling troupe that performs in local gyms, like low budget, not a lot of fans, no glamour. He wants to ride into out in the sunset one last time, though. It's like a cowboy story. And unlike his glory days, he's now a cartoonish figure of really both body and soul, with his muscles pumped full of steroids all these years and supplements and his face is just tattling on years of drug and alcohol abuse. The fans, they cheer and jeer him, you know, recalling his better days, but not really respecting him any longer as his hour of glory has passed. In one, in one last jump from the top ropes, the wrestler leaps for glory to hear the cheer one last time, to be noticed and seen and loved. And he dies of a heart attack in the air and there's a sense that he is at peace as he has once again received this glory. Um, he's been the flying acrobat, the show, the centerpiece, the entertainer. He is loved, sort of, by the crowd. But the crowd doesn't really care about him. It's not a real love. Those that he should have loved are in the movie. It's his daughter and his former wives or girlfriends. And they're all gone from his life. Uh, repeatedly, he has chosen glory um, and drugs and sex over those closest to him. He's failed to love them, trading real love for the false love of the crowd, which is a just an uh, entertainment for them. Thus, the sense of peace in his death is not so much of achievement, but rather a putting to sleep of this never-ending dream that, he, that just couldn't die, he couldn't let go of. And the need for the approval and cheer of strangers never came close to a real love at all. The ballerina's death in The Black Swan comes in her prime, and the wrestler's death is in his twilight, but they both suffer the same illusion. So how does that relate to uh, the woman with the cursed bananas or dreams of writing fame of my own uh, experience? Well, one of the reasons I don't write fiction any longer is because I gave up the dream and realized that fame or glory would never have satisfied me any more than really getting drunk did. Perhaps uh, there's an element of sour grapes, too, since I chose not to pursue it fully, like uh, like the wrestler, or the black swan, or um, and I didn't get glory. So maybe I just put on the fig leaf of I didn't want to be a success anyway because it would have made me shallow, you know, like the sour grapes. I can't reach the grapes, so yeah, they're no good. I don't want them. So that notion I've dug into a bit, but in one of those life moments, like what I had in the office cubicle, I had another one when I read a poem by John Keats, the poet, and it was, I was in a little library in Fort Sam Houston, Texas, and while all the other combat medics in training were engaged in less nerdy things than I was, I would spend my free hour or two each day reading in this little library. It's one of my favorite places, and no one would think this would be a place to go to, but I had a lot of fun at the little library pulling books off the shelf. So after dismissal, I would rush off to this library and find a book, usually from like classical literature section. And one, uh, one day I read uh, a poem by John Keats uh, called On Fame. 
And I remember uh, feeling like I was reading instructions from an experienced artist to forget about fame, to give it up, like just forget about it. Um, the poem, here's some lines from the poem, and it goes like this. Fame, like a wayward girl, will still be coy to those who woo her with two slavish knees, but makes surrender to some thoughtless boy and dotes the more upon a heart at ease. She is a gypsy, will not speak to those who have not learned to be content without her. So Keats, John Keats, he gained fame in his short life. Um, he was saying that to pursue fame almost guarantees that the pursuer won't get it. He's talking about motives and desires. Um, if the desire is for fame, then the pursuit is all wrong. He's saying like, you're not going to get that if that's what you're after. So I, I knew when I read these lines that if I did not write for the love of writing, then it was like a business pursuit or a cheap trick for the love of strangers. It's desperate. Um, it's like you're, you're too desperate for approval or love from others that don't even know you, like the rustler or the black swan, but they have this still this driving urge to do it. I knew I loved literature and writing, but there was never enough. Like I always needed more, kind of like Mickey Rourke in the movie. Um, or Sean Penn in U-Turn, where he always needs the next like vice trouble. He's always looking for trouble. I always wanted more books and more time, more time to write. I was chasing a goal. Um, and like the characters in those movies, you know, you're, the goal becomes everything. So this rage to master, I know I've said that a few times in this, it's like, it's this burning desire to get better at the thing you want the most. And something comes to most, we all have something like that in some form or another where we want to be great at like science or programming or gaming or sport or cooking, whatever. Uh, but the motive underneath that rage must, you got to examine that because the root of the rage might not be, may not be joy, but a kind of anger or maybe even a, a hatred of some kind. And Keats tells us to just kiss fame goodbye before you even start, because if you don't, that butterfly will never land on you. He compares fame to a goddess that chooses some, uh, quote, thoughtless boy who has a heart at ease. So someone who's like humble and just uh, going along doing his thing because he loves it or because uh, and maybe that's John Keats saying, I just love to write poems and somehow I became famous. I was a thoughtless boy. So say goodbye, he says, and if she likes you, she will follow you. Um, he says it in, his, um, in this older English way right here. Here's three more lines from that poem on fame. He says, ye artists love Lorne, Madmen that ye are, make your best bow to her and bid adieu. Then if she likes it, she will follow you. So say goodbye, and if she likes you, she'll come after you. Fame will come after you. So whatever our treasure is, whether it's fame or something else, we must be able to live without it. We also must make sure that it's not the main treasure. Otherwise, we may learn the hard way that the treasure is actually, like I said, fool's gold or a mirage. Is the desire to, say, publish a novel or succeed in business or get 10,000 followers on, I don't know, Twitter or whatever, or to win the state title, is that actually driven by joy and passion of like a pure kind? Or is it one of, is it one of the seven deadlies hiding, causing all the trouble underneath? It comes down to the question of, are you worshiping an oak tree or real God? Are you panning for fool's gold or seeking eternal life? Is your daily ritual in life being sacrificed for fame, glory, wealth, or honor? Or do you offer all those up in exchange for humility, 
like Christ did on the cross. So this is not an easy topic to dig into, and there are layers to unearth. But all of these stories are great because you can see people with this obsession, and we love these stories because they're throwing their entire world, of they're sacrificing their life for this thing. Um, I believe that God's will may be revealed slowly to us. He knows the ending, but we don't. So there's these crossroads in this life where free will makes it difficult and choosing which direction to take is definitely difficult. Eventually, we must make decisions though. And sometimes I just want like God to shine a light on the path forward. And there are times it almost seems like he kind of has done that. And sometimes I've gone the wrong way and sometimes I've maybe went the right way. But in the end, God's will is done. So but to expect to hear like his voice for decisions is not how it works. And we must choose a way. I think that's, uh, you know, I made many of the wrong choices because I knew when things were wrong. My, my conscience ate at me when I chose those errant paths. Jesus says to enter by the narrow gate. He didn't say it's located in the alley behind the bar. And I spent a lot of time looking there. Wide is the path that leads to destruction, he says. But to follow him, we must take up our cross daily. And that sounds hard. It, it sounds really hard, doesn't it? I think it does, but um, you'd think so. You would think so, but it's not once you begin. So I recall that simple phrase all the time of surrender to win. You know, the, uh, the gentle mastery of Christ in life is what Keats was kind of talking about. It's, and it's what the young woman with the bananas needed, the cursed bananas. It's what Sean Penn needed in U-Turn and maybe in real life as well. Um, what the ballerina needed in, in Black Swan, and it's what the wrestler needed in those films. It's what the hunter is hunting and the seeker is seeking after. What are they all trying to find? They are seeking something that is good and true and beautiful. The best stories are of restless souls seeking redemption through strange sacrifices and pursuits. This is a story as old as time, literally, as what else is happening in the Garden of Eden but this. It is the story of lost innocence, and the subsequent pursuit of what the belly and the mind want. And you could say the loins or something too. The journey we talk about today, the journey that we are all on, that journey is the root idea of the fall in the garden where people journey away from God, rejecting his rules in pursuit of knowledge and finding that sin leads ultimately to death. The story of Adam and Eve is the story of someone who was once innocent, getting lost and trying to find their way back. It's so simple, it's, it's almost absurd because it's like a child's story, but that's what drives me nuts about Genesis is that taken literally, it really is every bit as good as allegorically. And honestly, one of the reasons I feel like I don't write anymore is because uh, I realized that the greatest stories had already been written and everything else was a rehashing. So whenever I think of a story idea, I think of another story that's already been written like it that's better than what I would have produced. There's a saying that all philosophy is footnotes to Plato. So Plato like kind of thought of everything and now we're just spending tons of time writing papers on all these things and we're, we're refining it and we're finding corner cases and these things. But uh, Plato kind of covered a lot of it, you know, like most of it. So. I would echo that and say that all literature is footnotes to the Bible, and I would add the Greeks, you know, mythology uh, in there as well, um, and other, you know, cultures, mythologies too. It's just that I'm just more familiar with the Greeks. So 
all modern stories are retellings of old stories. And the idea that the ancients were, were ignorant really betrays our own arrogance today and our sh really short-sightedness. What we reveal when we discount old stories is the re what we reveal is our own biases and worldviews today. My banana story is like the Garden of Eden story, and it's also the, the same story of Narcissus. Trapped by passion for his youth, Narcissus stares into the water until he dies, still gazing at his reflection in the river Styx. As he makes the boat ride into the underworld, Narcissus goes straight to his death, loving himself in, the, in his reflection. And both of these stories say much more than my banana story, or U-turn, or the wrestler, or the black swan. And they do it in far fewer words because paper was expensive back then, I think, and everything was oral tradition. So stories got distilled into very good metaphors, imagery, so you could tell the next generation. And there's much greater meaning and application using the old stories um, in my daily life when I think of them versus these movies or something that I came up with. But the happy ending for all of these seekers is simple. The rest, and the rest, and by rest, I mean the relaxation, the um, ability to stop gyrating around and, and trying to solve their, to find their, their worth in this world, they're, they're all looking for. It's not in holding a published novel or wearing a championship belt or having unblemished skin or hearing a round of applause or taking a trophy deer or winning the state title. The restlessness has a solution and it's available, it's free. And it's here now, and it can be delivered today to anywhere. And it goes like this. It's, it's this saying, Come to me, all of you who labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart. And you will find rest for yourselves, for my yoke is easy and my burden light. And that's Jesus speaking in Matthew 11. So what, what is he trying to tell us there? He's trying to tell us that, the fountain of youth is available, but it's through him. The pool is open. I think the old language of the kingdom of God is within you, that kind of talk can be confusing for a few reasons. One being that the word kingdom is dated to a different time than ours of American democracy. The word itself, kingdom, feels strange. Um, I've read a better translation might be the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, instead of within you. Um, but the word kingdom still, I think, throws it off because it sounds like from a different era. So one other thing, though, um, Jesus is always talking about water. And the fountain of youth is this magical water that restores, like the waters of Bethesda, where the crippled and the lepers attempt to receive miraculous healing. Um, there's a story there where Jesus goes into the waters of Bethesda and you know tells a guy to stand up, take, his, take up his mat and walk. So... This magical water isn't what he's looking for. It's, it's Jesus telling him, hey, take up your mat and walk. Um, so he's saying it's simpler than that. Um, Einstein and other scientists have expressed, like Richard Feynman has a quote about simplicity. Uh, there's always the simplicity in the beautiful formulas. Um, Einstein's formula, everybody knows E equals MC squared. Um, there's these simple formulas that can describe the cosmos and yet allude to this great complexity that uh, further than we can fathom, you know, like beyond us. So when Jesus is talking about himself being the living water, this is the quote, you know, he says, I am the li I'll, I'll give you living water. He's literally telling us that he is the fountain of youth, that he is the place of renewal. 
uh, when he says, I am the vine and you are the branches, he's saying we must drink from his living water, from his life. Uh, it's, it's confusing, but it's simple. The water is always a metaphor for belief in him, um, and life gives us water. In fact, even in the Garden of Eden, there's this water pouring out of the earth because their cosmology had these, this river under the, under the earth that all life was coming from. Um, so water, of course, is all over in the Bible, but um, it's, it's a metaphor for belief in, in him when he talks about it. We baptize one another in water to help us get this point that the living water is Jesus. We put holy water on our heads and fingertips to remind us that God is the way to health and renewal. Um, he turns water into wine. He walks on water. He calms the water. He saved uh, Peter from sinking from the water, what I named the, this podcast after. Um, there's just so much going on with water that you have to realize that these similes and metaphors are alternative ways for Jesus to say, to be saved, you must be baptized and believe. So he's kind of always distilling it down to that. But what's interesting here is that he says it flat out with no metaphor when he says you just be baptized and believe. But it's like that's not enough for us. We're just too picky to just hear the words be baptized and believe. And we, and we can't just take it at face value. But if we don't like that sentence, he says the same thing to Nicodemus, uh, the Pharisee, who's curious about Jesus when they meet in the dark because Nicodemus can't be seen like asking questions about it. Um, and Jesus says, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. So for some reason, we have, the, we have a couple of these ways that he puts it, but we still really need more. Like the literal version fails, so we need a metaphor. We need a story. Um, then we can get the metaphor and the story. And, we, and then as soon as we get the, the metaphor we start checking for malleability of it so we can start hammering it into whatever shape we want it to sound like. Uh, so the danger of the metaphor is always that um, you can you can turn a metaphor into whatever you like, which um, somebody could watch the same movies as me and come out with a completely different interpretation. And that's the great thing about literature, I guess. But uh, so anyway, must we must we choose to be beaten over the head? I mean, we we want these stories. We want the message. Uh, we want a very plain and clear message. And we always say, I wish Jesus or God would have just said this. Uh, but they did. They did say that. Um, so it's like, you know, how many stories, biblical or otherwise, tell these same tales of like, you know, return to simplicity, return to childlike faith. Uh, but we want something deeper and longer and more complex because we must keep eating from the tree of knowledge. Uh, the fruit of that tree never fills our bellies, or not for long. We are intellectual gluttons, let's just face it, such that um, if a simple answer is given, we reject it for its simplicity because we are not yet like God, just as the snake promised Eve. The reason it's called the tree of knowledge is because we hunger and thirst for knowledge far more than we hunger and thirst for the righteousness that Jesus mentions in the Beatitudes. And Google has accelerated this gluttony for knowledge into the equivalent of an all-you-can-eat buffet at an all-inclusive resort in Cancun with an all-night open bar. It's just always there. The, the funnel of knowledge and information and data just never stops now. So I share the same malady as The Hungry Little Caterpillar, which is another story. Um, it's a kid's book about this caterpillar who just eats his way through the book. And he's got this, like, it's gluttony straight up, you know. Um, but he's, he wants, he wants food. I want knowledge. 
Um, I, I kind of also want food, especially if it's cereal. But the caterpillar's gluttonous consumption transforms him into a beautiful butterfly in the end, as that is how his, his little caterpillar life is intended to unfold. But my hunger for knowledge leads to this intellectual gluttony and a kind of spiritual diabetes. The caterpillar eats everything until its stomach hurts, but this gluttony is toward a right goal for the caterpillar. My gluttony for knowledge leads to isolation behind a stack of books to the point that I start to study the Bible instead of just read it, just read the Bible. I heard a comment somewhere that made the point, uh, many of us would rather attend a seminar about heaven than actually go to heaven. And that's when you know you've lost the, the point of, especially if you're pursuing faith or you're interested in faith, when you start uh, just wanting knowledge about uh, faith and the world of the Bible and what uh, um, you've stopped, per, you've stopped trying to get to the kingdom. You you just want to learn about the kingdom. So you know, if a seminar is given you, uh, if someone invites you to a seminar about heaven and another person invites you to actually go to heaven, go to heaven. Like it's that's where you want to go anyway. So it's kind of one of these things where uh, remember where you're going. Like don't get distracted. This is. Um, it's like the fountain of youth, this pursuit of knowledge. It's just unending, but it can never be complete. To gain all knowledge is to literally become like God, which is precisely the problem, just like wanting to remain young forever so that you'd feel like God. So we want these things. We want glory. We want knowledge. We want youth. You know, all of these things, pleasure, whatever, so that we can feel like complete somehow, but it's never going to get us there because it can't. So knowing that many hunger for knowledge, Jesus kind of throws us a lifeline, offering us both the straight shooting literal version of his message and then the bonus metaphorical version. And he does it multiple times and in multiple ways. And still, still somehow we struggle to receive the transmission. You know, and I always wonder, how can it be so hard and I think that's why he uses the, he calls us a stiff necked people or some, a few different places in the Bible. Um, <laughs> stiff necked people is a great insult. Uh, I don't even, I had to look it up, but um, I had a stiff neck recently from a pinched nerve from sleeping funny, you know, and I had to turn my whole body to look at someone, which made me think of this idiom of the stiff necked people, um, which I learned came from oxen who uh, that refused to turn when the farmer lashed them or poked them. So stiff necked wasn't for people. It was about ox who were like pulling a plow and they wouldn't turn. So we are like that. Yes, we are stubborn. There's just no argument there. Um, a second line I always smile at when reading the Gospels is when Jesus says, let the person who has ears listen. It's, it's this funny line, I think, because he says, let the person who has ears listen. I don't know that it's meant to be funny, but it always kind of makes me laugh because it sounds funny. Um, it's just an element of humor to it because I think of a public school teacher who's trying like day after day to deliver lessons, but has 20 out of 30 kids like screwing around and ignoring him. And anyone who's went to school, public school in particular, uh, there's tons of kids screwing around and the teacher's trying to teach and <laughs> hardly anyone's listening. Um, but then when the test day comes, the kids who weren't listening complain and they say, but you never went over this stuff and we've never heard of this material. It's not fair, you know, when the teacher's like, yeah, I went over this stuff and you had the textbook. So, you know, there's, there's like, uh, I've tried, I did my best. And that's like, uh, apparently, okay. Apparently we have stiff necks and no ears. 
or stuffed up ears. So why are we diagnosed as stiff-necked and earless by Jesus? Well, it means we are prideful, rebellious, and stubborn. So we're, we're like jumping around in the back of the classroom, ignoring his teaching and expecting the test to just be open book or that if we fail, we get a second or third chance to retake the test. Um, while the teacher instructs, we're having like spitwad wars and showing off. We're passing notes and checking our phones when we're not supposed to be. In short, we want a different kind of wisdom than what he offers because we want to make a name for ourselves in the classroom to be seen, to win, to be approved. You know, uh, the snake suggested this idea in the garden to Adam and Eve so that we cannot hear the truth, so that we cannot be simple and exposed. We, we can't be naked before God. We, we have all these other things going on and, and motives. The simple answer doesn't satisfy us because the suggestion that we can be like God still lingers in our ears that listen to what they want to hear, not to what he is telling us. We choose not to believe that what is ultimately good, true, and beautiful could be something so simple because the enticement of something secret and deliciously complex seems more exciting and inviting. So even as Jesus tells us that the, the children understand the kingdom better than adults can, we scheme and plan our way to outdo each other. Paul states uh, this quite plainly, and he says, I love this because he says, Has not God made the wisdom of the world foolish? And if you read the Imitation of Christ, it's this repeatedly saying, you know, the smartest person in the world doesn't get what a five-year-old kid does. Like, they just don't understand it. They're too, they're too far away. They're turned away. They don't get it. They might know everything more than anyone else, but they don't understand. They don't have ears. They don't hear. Um, so has not God made the wisdom of the world foolish? And indeed he has. And that lesson is so hard to learn as it seems like the best students learn this lesson early and the rest of us take this wide path to destruction. And many of us never learn it at all. And that's why these stories I was talking about, like um, my own story I wrote and U-Turn and The Wrestler and Black Swan, they just don't learn it. And that's what, why the movie's good. They're, they're going down this path uh, to like destruction. Um, so unless you return like a child to faith, you can never have this, uh, this rest. And for those of us that cannot bear something literal, um, the related metaphor that Jesus offers, this is a good one. It's, it's unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a grain of wheat. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. So, you know, not everybody's a accustomed to farming and gardening, but there's um, an obvious message here, but it's also really profound and deep. This like couple of sentences about the grain of wheat falling to the ground and dying and then producing fruit. Um, if it just remains a grain of wheat, then it doesn't do anything. So I'll just end with this for part two of this. A grain of wheat doesn't form until the wheat plant reaches maturity. So anyone who's planted something knows that the seed that you can watch it in your grass, in your yard, or, or in, a, um, I mean, corn, you can watch that. And, uh, being from the Midwest, there's corn everywhere. So you can see when corn comes up, there's a, they call them like V1, V2, V3, these leaves, each leaf that comes out, there's this process of maturing and you don't see anything corn related until quite after it's uh, planted. Um, so there's most of the plant's life, early life, is there is no grain. So the grain of wheat in its youth, it grows. 
but the intended purpose of the plant is to grow and make more wheat. That's the purpose of a wheat plant. So the point of the plant isn't to just live. It's not to live forever or outlast the plants around it. Or it's, the wheat plant isn't trying, shouldn't be using up as many resources as it can to be the largest wheat plant. The point of the plant is to reach maturity and then return to the earth to give itself back and produce more wheat. So in other words, the wheat plant becomes like a child again. The wheat plant started from a seed of wheat. A grain of wheat is a seed. So it must return to become a seed of wheat like a child. The adult must become like a child again to be complete. The child must grow, mature, but must become like a child once again. It's so simple, but it's so complex. And it's like Einstein's formula or Richard Feynman's comment about these sim simple formulas. Uh, whoever loves his life will lose it. That's another one of Jesus' sayings. He says, whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will preserve it for eternal life. And that, that's a hard saying. <laughs> Talk about difficult sayings. But it ties to this grain of wheat dying and making more wheat, like it's producing. So here's the question. Do you want the fountain of youth or do you want eternal life? And it's a trick question. It's a trick question. And the fountain of youth is available if you stop looking in the wrong places and if you stop thinking it's all about you.